uh, like it's like anecdotally. I can't pronounce that freaking word. Anecdotally. <laughs> Anecdotally. Can you do like a French and an English version of the podcast? Can you give me a French intro? Bonjour et bienvenue sur Asking for a Mate, le podcast qui interroge les hommes. Yes. Well, I'll do it in English. Let's do it. Hello and welcome to Asking for a Mate, the feel-good podcast that asks guys to go beyond the small talk. This is a podcast that celebrates guys talking frankly and freely about subjects they usually wouldn't talk about. I'm your host, Cecile, and each episode I get the chance to ask Aussie guys what's really going on beneath their thick skin in the hope that it will inspire others to do the same. This episode, we're going to be chatting with Scott about mental health in the workplace and also probably a little bit about the media because Scott also worked in the media before changing his career. Welcome to Asking for a Mate, Scott. Amazing. Thank you for having me. My career, I've had this almost dual pathways. I started off studying journalism and I worked in the media and I worked, I hosted TV shows and produced TV shows. And then at the same time, I, I had this business journey and I started a production company, which was really exciting. It brought me to America and I worked with people like Jason Momoa and Margot Robbie and all this really cool stuff. But at the same time, I always had this passion for mental health, well-being, self-development, which initially stemmed from doing martial arts when I was like 15. And my coach was a martial artist, but he was also this a bit of like a guru. And he would talk to us about, you know, like discipline and improving yourself and all that kind of stuff. And I really found that fascinating. And I liked the idea of helping people. So then while I had this media business production career happening at the same time, I was always reading books about this kind of stuff and philosophy and psychology and everything else. And then eventually I went back to uni and I studied psychology, um, did the graduate diploma and stuff like that. And then only now I'm finally finishing my thesis to get my master's. So it's been a bit of a process. And then a couple of years ago, I decided to, I was the chairman of Headspace Adelaide, which is a youth mental health service. And I decided to launch a startup, a tech startup called Uda which stands for eudaimonic well-being, which is started by Aristotle, the ultimate form of fulfillment. And Yuda is a corporate well-being software, almost like zero, but for corporate well-being. So it's to support companies, to support their staff members. But then we also have a version which is used by coaches, psychologists, practitioners to support their clients. So there's the two sides. There's the, the corporate well-being yeah. and then there's the helping a practice with as their software, almost like a mind body in that sense. So, yeah. And so here I am today. And now I still do the odd TV hosting gig here and there, um, but it's maybe 2% of my career now. I, and now I just have the production company. So we do videos, ads, commercials, all that kind of stuff. And then you know, the software mental health. So that's, yeah, the combining of the worlds, these two separate careers, which have ended up here with these two businesses, which is pretty cool. Yeah, no, I think that's brilliant. And I love the fact that you've kind of found that psychology was something that you wanted to do and you've basically applied it and then actually started a degree. Like if I, if I had the courage, I think I would, I would probably do the same, but just like, I don't know, not yet. Yeah. But and it's juggling as well because you've got, 
a full-time job, launching a business, uh, being a uni student. Like it's this weird, even right now I'm writing this thesis yeah. while I'm running campaigns and working with big clients and stuff. What are you writing your thesis on? Well, it's about uh, neu- positive psychology and neuroscience. So okay. looking at uh, neuroscience markers based on, so for example, mindfulness, yeah. there's um, a lot of there's studies coming out that it impacts great and increases gray matter in the brain. So it's got yeah. positive benefits. Yeah. So that is one example of a positive psychology intervention and the impact from a neuroscience perspective. So that's the whole thesis is looking at the neuroscience implications of key positive psychology interventions. That's brilliant. Yeah, because it's just, I think, especially with the whole new wave of, you know, the mindfulness and sometimes it gets a bit, people think it's quite airy-fairy mm, or it's mm. not very tangible as much as traditional yeah. psych or neuroscience. So it's good to have that scientific brain looking at it from the lens of science and facts and physiological actual changes in the brain is really cool. Yeah, and that mm. makes complete sense. Just making sure, yeah, I feel like a lot about mental health is that a lot of people say that it's not real because you can't see it. And there's been a lot of research that has been done to try and demonstrate this is a true thing because otherwise people don't take it seriously. Yeah, it's like yoga and meditation. It's yeah. been around forever. But it's only now that there's science and evidence-based practices backing up the mm-hmm. benefits of it that some people are going, oh, yeah, okay, that actually isn't just this fancy, nice idea of sitting there and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So, and, and how was your experience being the chairman of Headspace? Because you said it was a youth program. Yeah, so Headspace is a youth mental health service. It's yeah. all around Australia. Um, but it was – so it was the Adelaide branch. I was based yeah. in South Australia. So we did – yeah, and it, it's incredible. They support the mental health of teenagers, um, a lot more psychosis and, you know, severe mental illness, but it's just incredible. And so and that's where the idea for you came from because I was working with this big consortium of board members of big companies and experts in the space, and we worked closely with the Wellbeing and Resilience Centre in Adelaide called SAMRI, which is the National Wellbeing Resilience Centre, yeah, and it was just all these incredible people, but I thought there's not enough software. Mm. There's no software or tech to underpin this. It's still quite old school in terms yeah. of Excel spreadsheets and, oh, and then, you know, how do you know how people are going when they're not yeah. in a session? There's no measurement tool for that mm-hmm. in-between period. So, yeah. but, yeah, I love the experience. It was a volunteer position, but it was just super inspiring being able to have an impact and, lead these different projects that we we got across the line and see how that yeah. actually helps people. So, yeah. yeah. And so now you translated this into a product for the corporate world. Is that correct? Yeah, I guess yeah. it's quite separate. Like what I was doing with, with Headspace was more just leading different mm. projects in this consortium and guiding the direction of that kind of stuff, whereas the startup – it just stemmed, it's morphed yeah. and changed since then, but it, that's where, where it was first. I yeah. just had the eureka moment of software in this space, yeah, in this way. yeah. And then, yeah. So what do you think about mental health in the workplace at the moment in Australia? I think it's still definitely without a doubt underappreciated and it's mm. not um, taken seriously enough. I think COVID, so the big thing that we've seen I mean, pre and post COVID, mm. I guess a positive thing that's come out of that is a bit of a mentality shift towards the importance. So a lot of HR directors that we're speaking to now, before COVID, it might've been a nice to have, 
oh, yeah, it'd be good to have, you know, we probably should help people, to now, well, we have to have something in place to help with their mental well-being and mental health. And then there's studies, come, research coming out, 85% of people um, have a decrease in their mental well-being since COVID. So it's just all these really scary statistics. Yeah. And, yeah, so I think there's definitely a lot more that needs to be done. There needs to be tangible solutions, not just saying our, our business, but just it just needs to be more of a tang, tangible, holistic approach versus the odd fruit basket or mm. – oh, we're doing this corporate retreat once a year and then in between that time. And also a big thing isn't just, so they talk about it's like a cake. So there's the the actual base of the cake, which is the systems and processes. So mm-hmm. um, it's all good and well to have a program in place or some kind of system to help improve well-being. That's great. But if the systemic elements of the company are, it's a bad culture, it has a to- mm. like toxic environment, you know, burnout, things in place, like a a culture of overworking, of never switching off, of you should always be on your emails, even at 1am, no matter what, all of these little things, that's like the baseline, which impacts the mental health. So if you can't work on that stuff first, and then the icing is almost having a a program and a strategy in place. And, and then that's all supported by. Yeah. 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 we, we, We did kind of talk together about the fact that Sometimes we've got you've got companies where we've got people that almost wear their burnout as like a, a badge of honor, mm. and and like where is this coming from? The fact of just being so dedicated to do your job that you burn out, or almost like not being able to yeah, switch up things. Like it's interesting. It, well, that makes me think instantly of Japan. In Japan, it's almost. It is seen as if you fall asleep at your desk, it's mm. not a bad thing. It's like, oh, he's working really hard because he's worked so hard that he's yeah. fallen asleep at his desk. And so, and that's, I guess, a really visual example of that. But I think we do have that to some extent. I think it comes from the whole hustle, Wolf of Wall Street culture. Mm. You've got to grind to make it. You've got to, you know, be always on and always hustling. And and I work with um, some coaches myself and one of uh one in particular her name is Pauline and she's incredible she does mindset stuff but also like the spiritual elements and and her big thing is about incorporating elements of play and rest like deep rest as well as the moments of working mm. hard and, yeah. and going for it so yeah I think maybe it's that hustle yeah I find it a little bit too archaic in a way this idea of like the more you work, the better you're an employee. And mm. I think we've seen it with um, also with COVID, the fact of not having to be all the time at your desk. Yeah, it's the idea that being chained to your desk for nine hours doesn't result in a better outcome. And I think the shift towards outcome focus versus specific time, it's a, it's a tricky one, but I think yeah. for me as a business owner myself, yeah. managing people, I would – how you get there doesn't matter as much to me as the result. And if you can, if you're more, like I know myself personally, if I was my own manager, which I guess we kind of are. You are, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I do my best work if I can actually go, we have this basketball court at the office, I go shoot some hoops, not think about anything for 10, 20 minutes, and then I come back and I do much better work for the yeah. next two hours yeah. versus if I tried to stay there for, for three, four hours nonstop, yeah. I'm not going to be as productive. Yeah. So having that break. And working, you know, some days I might start a bit later, but then I'll work later or 
Mm. It's just kind of listening to your body in that sense yeah. and working to what works so well for you. How do you do it yourself? Because you've got obviously so many things happening at once. How do you manage to stay on top of your mental health? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's it's a bit of a process that you learn over time. There's obviously having things in place like going having a coach for yourself, using these processes that that we learn at uni to help other people, but doing it on yourself, that's a yeah. big part of it. So there's practices that I put in place in terms of, you know, positive psychology applied aspects. Um, yeah. And oh, there's so much to it. Self-care is a really big thing. So finding out what those things are that help you fill your cup up, like meditation is a really big one for me, fitness, doing boxing, like making sure I'm active, eating healthy, sleeping, it's all the basic stuff. Like yeah. tr treat yourself like you would treat a little kid sometimes is the best analogy. Oh, yeah, like make sure they get enough sleep and yeah. they eat well. They're you running. are your own parent. Yeah, exactly. And um, so all that kind of stuff works. And then obviously not um, showing some kindness and self-compassion for yourself. And a big thing for me is the idea of, oh, you, you should be doing more, you could mm. be doing this or, and it's been a process to learn to be able to be like, actually, it's okay. Like you've done enough for now. You're doing well. You can just chill. Yeah. How do you know? And that's a, also a question for myself. Like, how do you know <laughs> when you've, you've done enough and you actually can be proud of yourself rather than just be like, no, but I could have done this and I could have like, you know, when you're self-employed and you've mm. got all of those goals and when do you know how to stop? Mm, that's a tough one, isn't it? You have to set yourself, well, a big one is goals. Like mm. I'm all about setting goals, smart goals. So if you set realistic goals, it's it's you're able to set those measurements and KPIs for yourself. And once you've hit them, it's quite tangible that you've yeah. hit it. So that's one way, I guess. And then in terms of sometimes, again, just listening to your body, knowing when it's, all right, I've done enough today. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I've done enough. It's okay to just relax or it's okay to finish a little bit early or that kind of stuff. So maybe it's the intuition actually listening to your body and then also in a more tangible sense, setting goals and ticking them off. And yeah. yeah. So what about mental health goals? Yeah, that's a good one. I'm a big believer in having minimum, minimum standards. So for example, like setting myself a goal or a minimum standard of meditating once a day for 10 mm. minutes once a day for 10 minutes or three ex like exercising three or four times a week. That's just an absolute minimum. And, and another one is like not going more than three days without exercising, because once you've gone three days, it's easier for it to become a pattern and a habit. So you keep it consistent. So yeah, setting yourself those little minimum standards that you can tick off, drinking enough water, eating enough food. You don't always hit there, but if you have them as benchmarks to yeah. aim towards, it's yeah. a good thing to have in the back of your mind. Yeah. To, to have that approach. Yeah. So is that something that through UDAR you're also trying to distill into employees or it's more just them, like the company deciding on what the wellness element and mental health is it's within? A, yeah, it's a bit of both. So it's, it's, a, it's a software, it's a tool, so almost like zero. An accountant would use it in different ways depending on their specific clients and needs and it integrates with their systems, all that kind of stuff. But then there is inbuilt systems there. For example, we have live sessions with experts about improving your sleep and nutrition. We've got the meditation element. We've got a journaling tool. We've got like setting goals, um, yeah. having, uh, 
a check-in as well, like an external check-in. So we've got surveys, mental health surveys that you can do to see where you're sitting on an individual level and then measure that over time. So it's almost having those red flags to be like, oh, what's going on here? Something's happened. Like why am I consistently in a bit of a rut? What can I do to change that? All that kind of stuff. So it's a bit of both, but then also it depends how the company uses the tool. Yeah. Yeah. So from um from a male point of view, having worked in a corporate and having a tool that is also focusing on on kind of the corporate world, do you have you noticed a difference between how men and women would handle mental health in the workplace? Hmm. I haven't uh, directly seen a specific difference. I think women might be more inclined to speak about it openly. Yeah. There's potentially less stigma, but again, this is just a, you know, an observation. Yeah. But I think there maybe is less stigma around and women might feel more comfortable having those conversations, at least with their peers. Yeah. They're, they might be more open to having those conversations. Whereas with men, it's, again, it's that I'm tough and it's fine. I don't need to talk about it. And, you know, mates to your other mates, Oh, yeah. you'll be right, mate. Like it's the approach. I think it's there's less empathy between each other okay. to an extent. Yeah. So yeah, it's just an observation. Is that something that you've you've experienced in your life working that you've had less empathy from other male colleagues, or mm. it's just what you think would happen? I think so, definitely. Even male friends versus female friends, like it's a different dynamic that I've experienced. I've had a lot of both over the years. So I think there is a different dynamics in terms of how that relates. And then I've just seen it in terms of in corporations and, you know, through seeing it in action through groups and courses and sessions and stuff like that. It's almost just a slightly different mentality around how it's perceived due to some belief or image that we have. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting that you mentioned this about the beliefs and and even the stigma. There there is a new relatively recent survey that has been going out in Victoria around uh, mental health and young men. I don't know if you've heard about it, but they were saying that mm. the men that have the strongest beliefs in the masculine stereotypes or the gender stereotypes we're actually more prone to have mental health mm. risks and dangerous behaviors. I thought it was very interesting how that, but it's exactly what you're almost exactly what you're explaining, right? The people that feel like they can't open up then might suffer more as mm. a result because they can't open up. Yeah. Or they think if I show weakness, it's weakness. I'm showing weakness. I'm showing yeah. you can't show anyone your, your, weak spots or the ways to get in. I have to be this like, no, I'm always fine. And I'm always showing up as I'm capable and strong and confident. And it's, it's not, I can't be shown to be vulnerable because yeah. So I think that's definitely something we're moving. I think we're moving in the right direction Yeah, and it's a process, but it's definitely still ingrained in that belief system. Yeah. One thing that happened very recently was the fact that, uh, two MPs almost at the same time took what they called like stress leave or mental health leave. And then how the media portrayed it was then the reaction was like, well, they're not fit for the job. Like mm. if they're taking stress leave, they're not fit for the job. And 
Obviously, like, you know, it's their right, their right to question whether MPs, you know, should take yeah, stress leave because I, they're in charge. And I think there is slightly a difference. So the one thing at play there as well, which is probably, I think it could be an indication of something happening in a workplace and a, and a belief we have. But I think the point of difference in that sense is the fact that we also have this belief and this almost animosity towards public servants, politicians, mm. because it's the tax money. Why are we spending this tax money? It's like I've heard it so many times. They're spending it. We're spending their money on them. They can't even do the job or they're not fit for the job. So that could be like a small mm. part of it. But then I think it's also combined with this thing of that again. Oh, well, then are you fit for the job? Do you have what it takes? Yeah. You, are you cut out for this? Like it's too much for you, exactly. all that kind of stuff. Which, so. which is, I think, something that we see in other jobs where you've got people that are afraid of voicing out the fact that they're struggling because then they're afraid of actually being kicked out of the job because they can't do the job because they're taking a sick leave or something. Mm. Which I think is a shame because it, it might be perpetrating the 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 idea of like, well, you need to be yeah. super strong. And this is why it's such a complex situation as well because that also then could speak to what I was saying before about the, the systemic cake situations. There are some companies where that could be the case. Yeah. There are some companies where they could have this somewhat toxic toxic culture of viewing it like that. Yeah. So not to say that's everywhere and it's important to move away from that, but then there's also some truth in that in some instance, where, you know, which is really which is really worrying and that's something that needs to shift and needs to change so that there isn't the the fear isn't justified. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah that makes complete sense. But I, in my point of view, I was like, well, if, you know, if politicians, usually politicians are supposedly supposed to show the way, obviously, yes, you don't want them to take like extra leave and every time that someone goes on holidays, they're being criticised for it. But... It's like, well, if we're not encouraging the people at the top that are supposed to show us the way how to, that it's okay to take seed, it's okay to take about your mental health and it's okay to not actually break down. I completely, I think I agree with your point though, that people don't really see them as human because there's taxpayer money. So they, they owe them basically. But still, I think the, the media, the way the media handled that discussion was a little bit then pointing the finger at someone and saying you shouldn't be taking Definitely. stress leave. Yeah, and they need to lead from the front essentially and be setting the example that it is okay to do yeah. this. And, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. I think that's really important. And who was it? The I saw an interview with Mark Boris and he was the CEO of I think it was Beyond Blue. Okay. And he'd suffered, he suffered with a lot of mental illness over yeah. his career. Yeah. And he says that exactly. He's like, I need to be seen to be leading from the front by setting the example of what is okay in the organization. Yeah. For other people to then so he said he does. He'll, he'll take a you know, stress leave or something or a mental health day yeah, or mental health and sets day, the, yeah. the precedent in yeah. that sense. Because it's the same with a leader. If you have if your boss says, oh, it's fine for everyone to leave at 5 p.m., like, you know, just leave at 5 p.m., but they stay till 6, 7 p.m., staff are most likely going to follow that example and think, oh, well, I better do the same thing if he's doing yeah, it. Yeah, completely. So you've kind of got to. Yeah. Yeah, it's about, but there's no perfect solution. That's the thing. There's no exact, this is how this works, recipe blueprint. Mm -mm -mm. Um, yeah. You worked in the media yes. for quite a few years. Yeah. How was it around mental health when you were working there? They had a system in place, like a corporate psychology system. But again, it was just the perfect example, in my opinion, of the 
target client for us because they oh, didn't really? have enough of a system in place. Yeah. They didn't they didn't really prioritize it. It was just a box ticking exercise. So yeah, I think like from a systematic point of view, it was pretty good. They had I mean, so in some instances, especially when you're hosting the show, it's pretty chilled. <laughs> like, like if you do the weather, you come in at 11 and prep your stuff and then you're on air for a few minutes. So it's quite of like a unique um, world situation yeah. itself in terms of the job design. Yeah. But but that doesn't mean that it doesn't come with pressure and stress and, yeah. you know, certain people that are in the public eye have pressure from a different sense and haters or whatever. So, yeah, I think for me looking back, they didn't do anything particularly wrong, but it was just I think they could do more. And yeah. I but I do think that with most companies could could be prioritizing more, which again is the shift that things are going in that direction, but there's a long way to go. Yeah. Just but, prioritizing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's because you were in South Australia, uh, but you also worked in the US, but the the way like TV shows and movies actually portray the media, it's pretty ruthless and pretty toxic. Was it yeah. your experience or not? Well, no? I I would say the portrayal of a newsroom yeah. is a lot more accurate in that sense. Okay. It's super, and I've worked in, you know, I did the weather a little bit. I've done some work in news, but it's the exact reason why I didn't want to go down that path was because it is quite toxic and it's super cutthroat and it's quite, really? there's deadlines and it's intense and it's, yeah. so that's definitely without a doubt. I would say production is a lot, a bit more chill. Like, like if you're producing a TV show, you've just got to do a certain number of episodes it's less intense. And then I think the content matter also drives the environment because in news, it's quite, there's some serious stuff, you know, yeah. you're going to yeah. crack like car crashes and fires and, and it's quite intense and it is quite emotionally impactful on a lot of journalists. But then if you're doing a travel show, which I did, which was great, <laughs> as you like sampling beers and, just riding quad bikes, it's a bit less. Um, I can't complain. <laughs> so why did you stop? Oh, I don't know. No, I had um, – I still do a little bit of the hosting. I yeah. still – it's just not my priority. It just was a bit too superficial for me. I want okay. – if I if I do more in that space, I think it would be more documentaries mm. with, with a purpose, some kind of cool documentary series. And I also think the traditional TV networks are struggling – as you obviously it's pretty clear that it's a bit of a sinking ship to an extent and things like streaming platforms, Netflix, it's, it's the way of the future. It's the way of now, essentially that's where, you know, all the funding, the money is. So yeah, I think it's just less, it's not as sustainable and it's, it's not as purpose driven for me to prioritize, which is why I left America. Like I got offered to host this um, big entertainment show and, but I just, I would rather be working on business and just working for myself and creating things than yeah. doing that. But it's also cool that I can still do the the odd, like it's not like it's completely gone to me now. I can still do a bit of that to tick the little itch for that because I still enjoy it. Yeah. But it just doesn't fulfill me enough to be my sole career. Yeah. What you said about Netflix and streaming platforms versus mainstream TV, one thing that I've – Don, I think myself is really not watching TV, especially Australian <laughs> TV, because like, and and what I find interesting about the streaming services and stuff is that I've noticed a bit of a shift in the way that they approach 
just equality almost like gender differences or also racial differences and disabilities and stuff the fact that you actually get to see shows that could be around and uh, someone is autistic or you know on the spectrum or you have a show that really centers about a woman chess have you player. seen love on the spectrum no is that I what you're thinking? No, yeah. so cute i love it <laughs> but i've heard about yeah. it apparently it's good yeah it's now, really I'm talking nice. about uh, a tv show called atypical which is oh, really yeah. good With i have seen penguins. it but i've heard of it yeah yeah it's uh, uh, I mean, I really loved it. it. It just feels like they're allowing themselves to go it's where. It's a bit more progressive and a exactly. bit more experimental, yeah. Thank you. That's exactly yeah. what I want to say. And, and I think that I'm like, it, it's such a shame that well, the, TV. The problem with, I would say, the reason for that is firstly, TV is quite the traditional networks. It's still quite an old model in terms of their systems in place. Yeah. You know, there's. There's le- I think there's less risk-taking now, especially. They have to back things that they know will work. That's why they're not producing a lot of new shows because mm-hmm. it's a risk. You've got Bachelor, right? Yeah. The Bachelor oh, well, and Bachelor that, in Paradise. I know the Bachelor, Bachelor, Bachelor is going to sell. Yeah. So just focus on those big shows. That's our thing. That's what drives the ad revenue. We can't really take this risk on this experimental show because we can't afford to take that risk. Whereas big Netflix, they're – desperate for content they need new content new shows they've got yeah. money they've got and and also and maybe also that's speaking to the fact that they've got this younger somewhat younger audience mm-hmm. because the the early adopters of the streaming services are a younger audience so i don't know but yeah it's interesting how, how different was your experience working in the US versus Australia oh wow i think it was a very big difference in so many ways yeah there's I think it stems, especially in the, it, like, it was LA as well. So it's quite a hyper, insane world compared to living in South Australia. Oh, yeah. Which is where I was and went from Adelaide to LA. So it was just this polar opposites contrast. But I think one of the big things which I like about the American kind of mindset and mentality is there's a lot less of this tall poppy syndrome, which we f- can see in Australia in terms of America. It's a lot more. Oh, like you tell someone what you're doing. That's amazing. How can I help? This is cool. Let's do this. Let's collaborate. I'll introduce you to my friend. And that it's less of the Aussie battler kind of, you know, you don't want to show, be shown to be succeeding too much because it's the, yeah, tall poppies, you cut down the poppy that grows too high, that approach. So that was, that's really cool. But at the same time, I love Australia and the lifestyle here and the way of life and working with people is a lot more easygoing and relaxed and somewhat authentic there's an element of it's it's authentic mm. and it's human versus a, a somewhat of a polished uh performance mm. sometimes i would speak to people in la and i would just feel like it was just a sales pitch like an infomercial mm. the conversation was an infomercial <laughs> and it's just like we're having so there's that element but then yeah there's pros and cons of both but overall but then also in terms of america it's just bigger Every production is bigger. There's more crew. There's more budget. It's still, it's what I feel like TV in Australia would have been 60 years mm. ago, which they call the golden era sort of thing where, yeah, you know. So you, you talked about that Aussie battler mentality. Where do you think that's coming from? Potentially it's come, it, the, well, if you think about the Aussie, the term itself, Aussie battler and the tall poppy, the actual historical where that came from was, convict time Mm -hmm. so being you know a convict and you're a battler you you, like our hero is ned kelly 
a, a criminal who, like, he's amazing. He's that's one of my favorite films. I love Nick Kelly, but um, but it's this idea that the person who's struggling but they're still getting on, they're still making it. That's the person that we celebrate because it's not this colonial. They've come in and they're they've you know got all the wealth and this and that and succeeding. Maybe it stems from there. I don't know. Maybe it's just something that we've developed over time. And I don't think it's obviously not widespread. It's not everywhere, but it's definitely prevalent in some sense in the culture. So, yeah, maybe it's from that mentality, just the, the working class kind of battler. Just to, to circle back to what we talked about originally about mental health, it sounds to me that when you're talking about the Aussie battler that just get on with things and don't whinge about the small stuff, like how do we then marry this or make it work with the mental health discussion that we were having? I think it has to change. You can, I don't think you should, if it works, it works. Like, you know, you can, some elements of it might be good. Then Aussie about I don't know. But I think we just need to consistently move in the right direction, in the direction of more inclusive, inclusivity, conversations, empathy, being okay with having conversations. Yeah. And if that means removing or reducing the focus on this concept of, ah, oh, it's all right, just like get on with it, mate, you'll be right. If then, then that's something that I think we need to do. And we are slowly moving in that direction, but it just needs more, it just needs more time. And yeah. so, yeah, so I think it's a matter of consistently moving in that direction of making it, less stigma and more okay to speak up and more okay yeah. to have those tough conversations. A good friend of mine, Sam Webb started a charity called Livin and because mm. a friend of his committed suicide and it's all about just it, it ain't weak to speak is their motto because it, and that is instantly addressing it ain't weak because in the past it was seen as weak to speak. So you can actually speak up and you can actually ask for help and you can say that you're not doing okay. And it's not weak to do that. In some sense, it's more brave to do that because you know that it's it feels, you know? Yeah. So that's, I guess, the way we're going. So do you feel like around you you've got people that you can have a deep conversation with? Yeah, I think definitely. For me, I'm lucky. I've I've almost it's like the you're the product of your environment sort of thing. Once you get older, you start to realize how much of an influence and you can be a bit more selective with the people you spend your time with, you don't have to sit next to a certain person in a school class or yeah. whatever. So yeah, I've consciously and unconsciously surrounded myself with people that have a similar mindset in that sense, can have deep conversations. I don't, I'm not someone who enjoys just gossiping or having these like um, surface level chats. I like having deep conversations, but it is definitely something you can consciously do as well. So the ability to and the importance of improving your environment and relationships and deepening them and expanding those relationships yeah. is really important. A big thing in positive psych is the concept of PERMA, which is ideally, it's essentially a framework that makes up the whole life. So it stands for positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And so if you can flourish in these five areas, that makes up um, well-being and holistic whole life and eudaimonic well-being, which is where the word euda comes from. Um, and so a big one of those is relationships. So in getting better relationships around you, deepening the relationships, friends, colleagues, all that kind of yeah. stuff, finding a support network that you can speak to 
is also a really big indicator of how resilient someone is, is the, the um, support network they have around them. Yeah, for sure. So, Yeah, so if we have someone that is listening today and, you know, is trying to think about, A, do I have enough people around me that I can reach out to if I need to, but also if they're asking themselves, like, am I actually – a good, am I actually an Aussie battler or and perpetrating <laughs> those stereotypes or yeah. am I actually, you know, changing things? Like what would you say is something that they need to do, like the first thing that they need to do next? I think you just said the first thing, which is self-reflection, because by having awareness, that's the first place where things can change. If you have this self-reflection and you can think, oh, I've been doing that or I haven't, I've actually been dis- very dismissive when people do this. This is yeah. That awareness is the first step to change, I think. And then from there, just educate yourself. There's so many good resources online in terms of even things like around mental health and suicide, how to have tough conversations, are you okay day, those kind of things, how to ask the tough questions and then follow that up with the right process. So I think it's just self-reflection and then actively taking steps to improve yourself and to become better at that and, and putting yeah, making a bit a bit more of a priority to just think, oh, you know, like I'm going to actually ask how next time I catch up with my friend instead of just chatting about mm. this and that, I'm actually going to ask one deep question or one kind of thing. I don't know. Is that There's something so you ways. do? I don't know. I think I just do it unconsciously now, but it 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 always starts consciously. Is that is there something recently that you had a self-reflection about and you were like, okay, I need to be aware or I need to change that or? Mm. I think... Oh, drinking less coffee was probably one. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Like I'm just smashing the coffee because, you know, obviously it's got a half-life and then you don't sleep, so that's one thing. And then another thing I was – a friend of mine was like, you've been very serious lately. Yeah, and I it was like just an observation and I thought, I have. Like I've been quiet because, you know, with hustling, it's the startup world and you've got to be focused and blah, blah, blah. But it's really important to remember as well to enjoy the process. So that's something that I've been consciously – just trying to be aware of is don't have to take everything so seriously. That's a great point. I think maybe we can end with that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we wrap up? I think that was lovely. I think the biggest thing in terms of the whole PERMA to build relationships, if you want to improve relationships, uh, all of that kind of stuff, I think a really big thing to focus on is just in expanding your life. So if you think about those elements of PERMA, expanding your life, getting more hobbies, expanding your network, your relationships, your friends. Like if someone wants to meet the love of their life, what's the best way to do that? Expand your life. Expose yourself to more like-minded people, like all of that kind of stuff. The big point that you mentioned is making sure to have empathy. And I think empathy is learned by also being able to hold space for someone else to talk about what's going on and to have those deep and meaningful chats. So. This is a little bit what we're doing here and that's the that's the point. So thank you so much for making the time to come and thank have you. A- it was a lovely chat and hopefully, yeah, keep up okay. the great work and there's more conversations that will spark from it. Yeah, I love it. I'm sure I'm sure that definitely what you talked about is going to help people have some deeper reflections about um, you know, their own mental health in, in their workplace. What is the workplace doing? So probably reaching out to Yuda, we never know. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. And then we'll be back soon for another episode. If 
hope you enjoyed this episode of Asking for a Mate. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. It helps others know that we exist. And if you would like to come on the podcast or know someone whose story would help others, please reach out to me on Instagram at askingformate.podcast or through the website askingformate.org. Thank you so much for listening. And guys, please remember to always go beyond the small talk because it feels great to talk.